So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's, 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. That um, seeing the little video prepares you for what we're about to do today. Hopefully, uh, it will jumpstart our study of Uh, winding up Revelation. My name is Norma Farthing, and I'm the lucky member of the teaching team that gets to wind all this up and talk about heaven. Pray with me, please. Father, you know how completely incapable we are of speaking or hearing the truth. None of us is here this morning to ask anything because of our worth. We ask because of our need, our goodness and your love, your goodness and your love for us. We ask for light, for understanding. We ask to know you better. We are painfully conscious that often we have turned away from your love and light, but we are thankful you sent your son to be the light of the world. Let him shine on us today and through us to all the world. In his name and for his glory. Amen. Do you remember the Cola Wars? Billy Joel singing about the Cola Wars? Anything before 1980? (laughs) We're, We're a young bunch here, aren't we? The Cola Wars were an early culture war, a time when people argued, actually argued, over which was better, Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola. Taste tests proved people preferred the sweeter taste to Pepsi, and Coke responded by changing its 80-year-old formula 
and introducing new Coke. The best just got better, the ads said. It was a disaster. People hated new Coke, refused to buy it, poured it out on the street when they did. Within three months, it was replaced by the old classic Coke, and order was restored in the universe. If it's new and improved, it has to be better, right? Not in this broken world. New and improved usually means nothing more than different packaging, less of the product inside, and a higher price. It's like Lucy yanking the football out from under Charlie Brown. We know what's happening, but we keep falling for that old trick. If there's one thing we've learned in our study of Revelation, it's that this world offers us nothing new. And we must stop being sucked in by its false claims. Babylon, with its demonic leaders, is still very much alive. And followers of Jesus are called to be countercultural, to resist even to the point of death if necessary. Those who do will be rewarded. Those who don't will be punished. When we talk about the scary parts of Revelation, that's usually what we have in mind. The return of Jesus will indeed be a time of judgment. Lots of judgments, actually. But it's also a time of setting things straight. It's a time of of um, creating something really new and improved. Not just the same old, same old, made over with a new label. I am making something new, God declares. And that ultimately is the key to understanding Revelation. Truth is, the entire Bible is Revelation. From the first book to the last book, it is the revelation of God and his incredible yearning to be with his people. God wanted people to know him and he wanted to spend time with them. In Genesis, we see the creation of everything, including people. And we see God coming into their garden every day just to spend time with them. Imagine the God of the universe who just created you, coming in every day, asking how your day went, talking to you like a friend, listening intently, then saying, see you tomorrow on the way out. It's that intimacy with God that makes what happens next so hard to believe. Adam and Eve disobey, eat the, the, the forbidden fruit, and make death a reality for themselves and everybody born after them. The results show up quickly, too, when one son kills the other one. And things get worse. By chapter 6, God has decided to destroy his creation and start over with Noah and his family. Yet that family's hardly off the ark before it's clear. They are not up to this task. And things get worse. But none of this surprises God. 
He had a plan in Genesis as surely as he has a plan in Revelation. And when we read both and everything in between, we must keep asking, what does this reveal about God? This is where it gets really good. God selects Abraham and starts over again. But Abraham is God's friend. He trusts God, believes God, follows God. Not perfectly all the time. But there's an entirely different dynamic in their relationship. With Abraham, God made a covenant to bless all people and all nations. He renewed that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac, with Isaac's son Jacob, and with Jacob's 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. It was these Israelites who became slaves in Egypt who were delivered by God through Moses and who built the tabernacle. Why? Because God kept wanting to be with his people. Indeed, I would argue that that was the principal reason for the exodus. Not just to relieve them of their suffering but to get them away from there so he could spend time with them. Have them make a sanctuary for me, he instructed Moses, and I will dwell among them. He did, too. Whenever the people moved, the priest led out carrying that holy tent and its accoutrements. When they stopped, it sat in the middle of the camp with all the other tents around it. Centuries later, Solomon built a temple for God. And after the Babylonians destroyed it, the returning exiles built another one, which King Herod rebuilt before Jesus was born. Herod's temple is the one Jesus knew, the one he called his father's house. It represented God's presence with Israel. Interestingly, the Old Testament speaks of God as married to Israel. From this union of God and Israel, Jesus was born. And Jesus was the ultimate expression of God's longing for communion with his people. In Jesus, God put on flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled with us. The clip we just saw reveals how Jesus walked around earth creating little pockets of heaven everywhere he went. He spoke constantly of a kingdom starkly different from the one people experienced every day. And he taught his followers to pray that this unique kingdom would come. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom is simply the domain of a king. When we pray for the coming of God's kingdom, we acknowledge his lordship. We pray for his rule in our own lives. And we seek out ways to partner with him in advancing that kingdom right here and right now. It's not something that we wait for by and by in the sky when we die. The early church prayed for God's kingdom to come, too. In fact, they expected to see it in their lifetime. But things kept getting worse. 
By the time we read the last book in the Bible, God's people are suffering desperately. Unless they affirm the lordship of Caesar over the lordship of Jesus, they face death. Injustice, greed, immorality, persecution, and death are rampant. Clearly, God's kingdom is neither here nor imminent. Even in the throne room of God, the martyrs are asking, How long, O oh Lord, how long before you put a stop to all this? God answers by sending an angel to John on the island of Patmos one Sunday morning and showing the beloved apostle a series of visions about how he will answer the martyr's prayer. Oh, there would be a lot of suffering first. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, political and civil unrest, hunger, war, plague. Well, you get the picture. It's the stuff we've been studying about for several weeks. In a snapshot, it would look like this. Now, don't worry if you can't read that. There's a copy in your study guide, and I want you to please get this thing out. It is so good. Thank you, Feli Lawson. It will make Revelation come alive to you in a way that I can't this morning. This is in the study guide. Revelation is a letter written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, meant to be passed around from church to church. It is both apocalyptic and prophetic, and it is saturated with Old Testament references, allusions, and ideas. The more you know about the Old Testament, the better you will understand Revelation. In both the temple and the tabernacle, for example, we see archetypes for the realities that we find in heaven in Revelation. They're models. Heaven's the real thing. Like Coke, right? <laughs> Most importantly, though, we must remember that, that Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hero of this book is Jesus. Jesus walking among the lampstands. Jesus dictating the letter. Jesus opening the seven seals. Jesus riding on the white horse. Jesus leading the victory at Armageddon. Jesus vanquishing the Antichrist and the false prophet. And even Satan himself. Jesus judging people and nations. Jesus reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. Lords. God the Father doesn't even speak until chapter 21. This book is all about Jesus. Interestingly, when God does speak, he identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega. He reiterates something he told Isaiah way back there centuries ago. Behold, I will do a new thing. The phrase Alpha and Omega appears only in Revelation. Once describing God the Father and three times describing Jesus. We saw it earlier in chapter 1 and this week it appears twice. It alludes to the first and last letters, the A and Z of the Greek alphabet. You probably know that. 
But the Greek words themselves are arche and telos, which mean respectively source and destiny in chapter 21, and protos and eschatos, in, uh, which mean first and last in chapter 22. Jesus also identified himself as protos and eschatos in the letter to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2. So Revelation makes it clear that Jesus is equally God. That all of human history is encompassed by him. That he contains it all and that he established himself as Lord in the very middle of human history by his resurrection from the dead. For he further identifies himself as the one who was dead and is now alive. And as Revelation draws to a close, we see Jesus marrying his bride, the church. Did you get that? Who's Jesus' bride? The church. As God's wife, Israel wasn't always faithful. Many of the Old Testament prophets lament Israel's infidelities and plead for her return to her husband who loves her. Most notably is uh, Hosea, but um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all those guys do that. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness to her husband, the standards for Christ's bride, the church, are very clear. She must be holy, blameless, radiant, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish. Ephesians 5. In last week's reading, we saw her, the bride, dressed in pure white linen, eager for the permanent, intimate relationship she would enjoy with her bridegroom. And for the marriage supper he had prepared for her. And for those who would attend. This week, we see the magnificent home where the bride will live for all eternity. The Bible calls it a city. This is not the restoration of the Garden of Eden, not a return to God's original creation, not grassy meadows, quiet forests, tranquil seashores. It is a colossal city, some 1,500 miles square, sitting on 12 foundations, with a massive high wall containing 12 huge gates. A loud, busy, productive city filled with activity and light and beauty and joy. Its vastness, Eugene Peterson reminds us, is not to stagger us with size. But to give us a feel for the enormous wholeness, the vast holiness that reduces every desecration and blasphemy around us to puniness. And it is Jerusalem of all places. The city that killed the prophets, stoned God's messengers, and broke the heart of Jesus. 
But God's making all things new, right? Now Jerusalem is new. Both heaven and earth are new, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of this new heaven to this new earth. When John wrote, there was no Jerusalem, no temple. Both had been destroyed by Roman armies in 70 AD. Yet here it is. Not just reconditioned, refurbished, renovated, repackaged, or relabeled, but completely new. No temple is needed there, for God the Father and God the Son are the temple, and God's Shekinah glory that filled the Holy of Holies uh, permeates the city constantly. There is no night. This is heaven. Not the atmosphere with its clouds and sky and birds, not even uh, outer space with its stars and galaxies, but the place where God lives. And the Bible doesn't actually tell us a lot about it. That's why people go wild imagining it. Sometimes it's pictured like a massive gate or the landing at the top of a staircase or both. Sometimes it's called the pearly gates where St. Peter stands glaring into a big book hoping your name won't be there. Or worse, suggesting that you can't know until you get there. Especially if you don't have a ticket. Well, there are actually, well, I want to go there. Some believe that we become angels when we die, that we'll be disembodied spirits floating numinously in space, that we'll sit on clouds for all eternity playing little harps. This is nonsense. Heaven is a place, a real place, inhabited by real people with real bodies. People who recognize one another, who eat and drink and work and play and worship together. And the Bible teaches that heaven is not out there somewhere. And it's not just a place to go when we die. It is God's dwelling, yes, but God is always with us. As close as our hands, Paul wrote the Philippians. Heaven is all around us, even now. Something like a fourth dimension that can be experienced with spiritual senses. Y'all, God is with us right now. And if we don't believe that, we might as well go home. God is with us now. As close as our hands. The servant of Elisha saw it in 2 Kings 6, and Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Mystics through the ages have experienced it, and some of us have too, in those quiet moments of solitude and longing for God the way he longs for us. The problem is that we have so few such moments. And while we rush around distracted by earthly things, God just aches. For time with us. When Jesus returns, God will bring heaven down to us. 
It is the trajectory of all human history. The residence of God is among people, Revelation reveals. He will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. It's the intimacy with himself that God has wanted all along. And ultimately, what God has yearned for from the beginning will become reality. But self-examination is necessary. Bible, the revelation makes it clear that not everybody will be in heaven. Nothing unclean can enter there. Heaven is for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose robes are washed in his blood. Those who have remained faithful to him until the end. Does that symbolic language unnerve you? Don't let it. Again, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have placed your trust, your allegiance, and your hope in Jesus, you need not fear or wonder. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Conversely, if you're not much interested in Jesus here, why would you want to spend all eternity with him? For that matter, if you're not much interested in his bride here, why would you want to live with her for all eternity? The church is dress rehearsal for heaven. We talk a lot about community here, y'all, but heaven is community on steroids. As you, as you review Revelation this week, notice that crowds, crowds everywhere, multitudes. A friend of mine says, if it's a chord here, it'll be an entire symphony in heaven. Why would you want to live with the bride if you don't like the bride right now? This is our dress rehearsal for heaven. People in heaven will neither need nor want to escape from the crowd. They won't sleep in or head out to the lake or the golf course. This is where we're learning how to live in heaven. And the place to start is right here at this table. Nothing is more intimate than table fellowship. We've seen that often, and we saw it in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here, Jesus reminds us that we will eat with him in heaven. Here, he offers us his own body, his own blood. What could be more intimate than that? And here he reminds us that when we eat this meal together, we remember his death until he comes. He is coming. 
Let us approach this table with hope and confidence as we cry out with John, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now, with all that in mind, I want to read from today's text. Will you just listen for those ideas? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending down out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore. Or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and true. He also said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my child. Then one of the seven angels spoke to me, saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me away in the spirit to a huge majestic mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. The city possesses the glory of God. Its brilliance is like a precious stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It has a massive high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel are written on the gates. The wall has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see how the Old Testament and the New Testament merge? The city's wall is made of jasper, and the city is pure gold, like transparent glass. The foundations of the city wall are decorated with every kind of precious stone. The main street of the city is pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, I saw no temple in the city, because the Lord God, the All-Powerful, and the, the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God lights it up and its lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their grandeur into it. Its gates will never be closed during the day and there will be no night there. They will bring the grandeur and the wealth of the nations into it. But nothing unclean will ever enter. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, water as clear as crystal pouring out from the throne of God and the Lamb flowing down the middle of the city's main street. 
On each side of the river is the tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. And his name will be in their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on him, on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy expressed in this book. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to pay each one according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city by the gates. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wants it take the water of, the, uh, of life free of charge. The one who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Amen. And amen.